Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 13, The Battle of Morelos. I'm Brandon Seal. When Antonio Zapata rode out of the Federalist camp on March 22, 1840, his nominal commander kept his cool. That commander, the so-called brush fox, Antonio Canales, knew that Antonio Zapata was impulsive. It's part of what made Zapata such a great battlefield commander. Of course, the brush fox, Canales, also realized that he couldn't rightly punish Zapata, who held a nearly totemic power over his troops and, frankly, over Canales himself. According to a contemporary, quote, Canales was afraid to move without having Zapata with him. Canales seemed to desire Zapata's presence, if only for his own personal protection, end quote. But there was good reason for this. Zapata's presence might very well have been the only thing keeping Canales's little Federalist insurgency alive. At the end of 1839, Canales's forces had been nearly annihilated outside of Monterey for the second time in six months, saved this time only by the valor of Zapata and his 200-man rearguard in a multi-day running battle against Centralist General Mariano Arista's 2,000-man pursuing force. Then, after buying Canales and the bulk of the Federalist Army the time they needed to make it back to the Rio Grande, it fell once again on Zapata to fend off Arista's Centralists for another month, while Canales and the political leadership of the Northeastern Federalist Revolt convened and organized a political strategy. That month had been fruitful. It yielded the formation of an insurgent government to rival the hated Centralist regime in Mexico City. Yet this new Federalist government of the northern border was really a government in name only. It had no money, no diplomatic recognition, and increasingly, it had no territory it could legitimately claim to control. By February 18, 1840, Zapata and Canales were forced even to abandon the lower Rio Grande vias, leaving Laredo as pretty much the entirety of the Republic of the Rio Grande, as it came to be called in English. And then, three weeks later, Laredo fell to centralist General Arista as well. Up until this point, Zapata and Canales had complemented each other pretty well. Zapata's native military genius and popularity with the people paired nicely with Canales's political acuity and ability to articulate the people's grievances in the ideological idiom of the day. And yet, with Centralist General Mariano Arista closing in on them now in March of 1840, the relationship between Zapata and Canales began to fray, and their differences in disposition came to the forefront. Most notably, the fact that Zapata had only one gear, attack, and for the last six months, he'd been forced to retreat. Canales, on the other hand, was strategic, sometimes to a fault. He often missed tactical opportunities because of fears that they could interfere with his larger, albeit often unclear, political strategy. And now, at this moment, he was clearly outnumbered by the centralists around him, and frankly, he was outmatched by the centralist general pursuing him. And so in his mind, the best thing to do was to play for time. Time for his ally, the fiery little San Antonian José María Carvajal and others in Texas to raise funds and recruit more volunteers. Or time, maybe, for the centralist leadership to come around to the idea of a negotiated peace. But everything in Zapata's nature recoiled at this strategy. And so when rumors of a Comanche war party in the nearby mountains of Coahuila reached him sometime around March 22, 1840, he took the opportunity to ride out after them 
with 26 hand-picked Rio Grande vaqueros and Anglo-Texians, including one who had recently become engaged to his daughter. Canales protested, but he couldn't stop the man whose stubborn self-reliance was so well-known that it shined through his hatband, the sweat stain a reminder to all of the famed Sombrero Mantecoso's origins and of his work ethic. And also, in the past, every time that Zapata had gone out on a mission, he'd come back with badly needed provisions for Canales' army. And things were as lean now as they had ever been in the Rio Grande Federalist Army. Many of Canales' men hadn't been paid in months. Some were barely clothed. And it was always a struggle to actually keep this army armed. And so, on March 22, 1840, Canales let Zapata go chase Comanches, or levy the countryside, or do whatever it was that Zapata felt like he needed to do. But as Zapata left, Canales and the rest of his army followed close behind. Not too close, a respectful five or six miles, but no further than the approximate distance at which the sounds of a skirmish up ahead might still be heard. On March 24th, 1840, Zapata and his 26 men entered the town of Santa Rita de Morelos in northeastern Coahuila. For whatever reason, despite the strong Federalist sympathies in the rest of Coahuila, Santa Rita de Morelos was a centralist town. The previous year, the townsfolk had actually even published a formal repudiation of Federalism. Zapata certainly knew this, but he also might very well have remembered the Morelenses from his tangle with them at the Presidio of the Rio Grande the year before, the battle which had culminated in Zapata making a strategic, though memorable retreat that included him riding within earshot of the defenders to complement their valor. In any event, Santa Rita de Morelos was a town that Zapata did not feel any reservations about squeezing for a contribution to the Rio Grande Federalist cause, which he entered the town to collect on that 24th of March, 1840. The townsfolk, of course, remembered Zapata as well. And they knew that he wasn't the type of man that you could tell no. So when Zapata and his men stormed into town and demanded provisions and horses, the townsfolk of Santa Rita de Morelos snapped into action. Some took Zapata and his men's mounts off to the corral for water and for rest. Some went to collect what money they could from the town coffers to pay off the intruders. Others offered to slaughter a beeve in case Zapata wished to stay the night and have a barbecue. But in the commotion, at least one Morelense snuck out of town. And not too far outside of town, that Morelense rendezvoused with a centralist cavalry officer. This time, it was the centralists who were better informed as to the movements of the armies through the northern Mexican countryside. Somehow, word of the split between Zapata's and Canales' forces had reached centralist General Mariano Arista. And here, General Arista had a choice. He could go after the bulk of the Federalist army still attached to Canales and potentially deal the Rio Grande Federalist movement a death blow on the battlefield. But then, Zapata would still be out there, alive and menacing. By contrast, General Arista felt certain that he could always make a deal with the brush fox Canales if it came down to it. But Zapata was just a different kind of animal. Things were too black and white for Zapata, the man who had sworn to fight until, quote, the last drop of his blood, end quote, and who seemed to really mean it. And so, the centralist general directed all of his energies at exterminating Antonio Zapata. 
quote, because of his personal valor and the influence he carried within the Federalist Division, end quote, in General Arista's own words. He ordered his 1,400-man army to march directly for Santa Rita de Morelos. The fact that almost 1,400 men were now directed against 26, really at the leader of those 26 to be precise, tells you how big of a threat Arista perceives Zapata to be. Arista sent ahead an 88-man crack troop of light cavalry while he force-marched the rest of his men to catch up. And it was those 88 men that were sneaking into Santa Rita de Morelos now. The 88-man centralist troop waited until Zapata and his men had dismounted, until they had been reduced to mere men instead of centaurs. The townsfolk played their part well, inviting Zapata and his men to relax and to dine in the comfort of a large white house sitting on the corner of the plaza. Zapata and his men accepted the invitation. It felt good to be out again, doing something other than running away. And that's when 88 centralist cavalrymen came charging into the central plaza. Zapata and his 26 men barely had time to get off a few confused volleys before they realized what was happening. Musket balls were then skipping off the ground all around them, and bits of rock and projectiles were stinging them like a swarm of angry bees. Zapata and his men responded instinctually, but wildly, with fire of their own, until Zapata called out to his men to take refuge in the large white stone house. The building offered good cover, and Zapata's trusted 26 punched out windows and took up positions on the roof. They began to pick out their targets carefully, making their shots count and blunting the momentum of the centralist surprise. In between directing his men's fire, Zapata debated what to do next. He was starting to make out the size of the centralist force, and it wasn't too bad. 88 men or so to his 26. Well, 23 now, because three had already been killed in the initial ambush. But 88 to 23, those were odds that he could take. He resolved to hunker down, to hold off the centralists rather than try to make any sort of reckless breakout attempt. Plus, he figured, if he could make it until sundown, under cover of darkness, he and his men could probably fight their way out of town anyway. But then, Zapata and his men heard a gut-wrenching chorus of vivas rising up from outside in the plaza. Centralist reinforcements had arrived, the first units of Generalista's much larger division. Soon thereafter, another round of vivas, stronger this time, as yet another unit moved in. Until almost 690 centralists took up positions in the plaza surrounding the white stone house. The calculus had just radically changed for Zapata and his men, even if they hadn't quite realized it yet. But just four or five miles outside of town, Canales had heard the sounds of the ambush. The volleys had tapered off a little bit, followed afterward by only occasional pot shots, which must have left Canales wondering. Maybe Zapata had already triumphed in the ambush. At any moment, Canales could see a messenger come riding into view from Zapata, calling in the rest of Canales' men to celebrate the victory or just to tell him what to do even. And yet, after waiting for several minutes or hours even, no messenger was forthcoming. What did that mean? Had Zapata been overwhelmed? And if so, how many centralists must that have taken? All that was left of Canales' cause marched alongside him now, 600 men or less, and he couldn't risk the destruction of his entire force just to save one man. Could he? One, quote, contrary and headstrong man, end quote, as Canales later called him. 
If only Zapata hadn't been so reckless, maybe this would teach him to be more cautious, more cautious like Canales was. If he survived, that is. The rest of the men in Canales' command must have had similar thoughts racing through their minds as well. Particularly the contingent of Carrizo Indians, which numbered 80 or more. Those 80 or more constituted pretty much the entirety of the men of fighting age of the Carrizo nation. The Carrizos were really a rare tribe in northern Mexico. They had made peace with the Spanish years ago, yet they'd always refused to be, quote-unquote, reduced by them into missions or any other subservient status. They actually even secured title to their own lands, title which the centralist government had run roughshod over and refused to respect. That brought the Carrizos to this fight as ideological equals and as fierce allies of Antonio Zapata personally, a man who had grown up among them. Maybe the Carrizos forced the issue for Canales at this point. Or maybe his other volunteers did. Or maybe it was some genuine concern for his comrade that drove Canales to do what he did next. For whatever reason, in the afternoon of March 24, 1840, the normally cautious Antonio Canales threw his caution to the wind and ordered his men to prepare to assault Santa Rita de Morelos. 600 men arrayed now in battle formation the mounted vaqueros on the flanks, the Texian volunteers and Carrizo Indians in the center, and together they began to march south. Back in Santa Rita de Morelos, Zapata and his dwindling troop continued to hold off the centralists. The surrounded Federalists poked their rifles through windows, over the roof line, and through self-made portholes just large enough to get a shot off. Zapata had hoped to hold out until nightfall, when he and his men could make a break for it, or maybe he was hoping that his comrade Canales would come riding into town with the rest of the 600-man Federalist army, where they could still join together and make an honest fight out of it. But after several hours, there was no sign of Canales. And Zapata, by now, was damn near out of ammunition. Zapata had sworn more than once in this war to, quote, fight until the last drop of his blood, end quote. But it's one thing to fight until the last drop of your blood. It's quite another to fight until the last drop of your people's blood. Three of his 26 men were already dead. Four more were bleeding out on the ground in front of him, including the man who would have been his son-in-law. Did Zapata think, in this moment, of his own daughters waiting for him back in Guerrero? Something, we don't know what it was, but something at this moment forced Antonio Zapata to consider something that he had never even entertained before. Surrender. Principles are easy to die for, but the complexity of life is also something worth living for. Normally, in the heat of battle, things became clearer for Zapata. But not this time, or not in the same way. There was no clarity, there was only darkness and blood and a lack of ammunition. Sometime in the late afternoon of March 24, 1840, Antonio Zapata poked a white flag out of the white stone building there on the corner of the plaza in Santa Rita de Morelos, out through a splintered wooden door, quote, pierced by hundreds of ounce balls, end quote. Centralist officers ordered their men to cease fire. In the new calm, Zapata emerged from the stone house and looked around, fresh sweat glistening through his hat band. Then Zapata grabbed his sword by the blade with his free hand and emphatically snapped it on his knee. Centralist soldiers moved forward to grab him before he could change his mind and took him and his men away. 
By the time that Canales and the rest of the Federalists came within range of Santa Rita de Morelos, the firing inside town had stopped. Zapata's guns had fallen silent. Yet somehow, word had reached Canales that Zapata wasn't dead, only captured. But even this landed as a shock to Canales, who viewed Zapata as something approaching invincible. And for Canales, on this occasion at least, everything became crystal clear. There was only one thing to do. Canales ordered a, quote, ferocious charge, end quote, an all-out frontal assault on the town. Canales himself was, quote-unquote, rabid in the attack. Leading the men from the front this time, this wasn't the cagey brush fox that so many had come to mistrust. Canales was a lion now. He had to be. He knew the stakes. Despite their differences or their argument a few days prior, Canales knew that he, and more importantly his movement, needed Zapata. If there was one thing that Mexicans, Indians, and Texians could agree on, it was that Zapata was the most effective and feared fighter in the region. Indeed, Canales' intensity in leading the charge now, which was just a few hundred yards from the outskirts of Santa Rita de Morelos, was exceeded only by the Carrizos, who charged forward at this point with a horrifying recklessness in their desperation to save their brother Zapata. But when the Federalists had advanced to within 25 paces of the houses in Jacales on the edge of town, a wicked volley of fire stopped them in their tracks. Vaqueros and Carrizos and Texians fell to centralist balls and to canister shot. The strength of the centralist position was all of a sudden revealed to them, and the momentum of the Federalist charge halted. Darkness began to descend on the battlefield, and it was clear, even to the quote-unquote rabid brush fox Canales, that the Federalists were too late. Around 7 p.m., Canales reluctantly ordered his men to fall back and regroup. But he wasn't done yet with Santa Rita de Morelos. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence of the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, the Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata, and in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers in Texas A&M's Cushing Library, and in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Media. that's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan José Gallegos, a retired NASA engineer 
Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Villas del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Villas del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasvillasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Top Filan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.